Okay, so um, it's, a, yeah, it's a real privilege to be invited along today to talk from Daniel 1. And I thought I'd start by introducing myself. Some of you know me, some, some of you know me, some of you don't know me. Day-to-day -day I work as a psychotherapist with offenders, that's what I do in my day-to-day -day job. And I think when I first heard that I'd be talking from Daniel 1, I was really excited because this is a book that has spoken to me over the past probably seven, eight years. In terms of knowing how to meaningfully engage with the world around me as a Christian and be immersed in the world but not letting it compromise my identity. So I think Daniel 1 today is really going to help us to think about how we can be salt and how we can be light in our city, how we can love our city and how we can make disciples effectively. So I'm going to start by praying before we get stuck into the text. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for saving us. Thank you so much for placing us in London. Thank you so much for placing us in our families. Thank you so much for placing us in our workplaces. And Lord, thank you that you want, you want us to be salt and you want us to be light, Lord God. And I pray today, Heavenly Father, that you will just teach us and show us what it means to be in this world, but not of it. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll come and remind us of our identities in you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you'll give us all the power that we need, Lord Jesus, to be able to represent you in this city. Amen. Amen. Great. Um, if you could turn to the next slide, it should come up with... Perfect. Can everyone... That's, is that big enough? Yeah. Brilliant. Um, so, I'll read this out and then we'll take a look at it. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age, so you would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. 
Well, that comes out really loud on the mic. <laughs> you hear my internal organs churning the water. Anyway. <laughs> so Daniel is a young Jewish man, okay, probably in his mid-teens, so 15, 16 years old, who finds himself with three friends being forcibly removed from his home and put into the Babylonian Empire, into the capital, Babylon. So just to recap, Daniel was from Judah, and about 500 years before Jesus came, God's people were in a mess. They've had a series of bad kings that disobey God, and he decides to discipline them by raising up King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. So Judah, Daniel's home, is invaded, Jerusalem is destroyed, and the king then selects some young gifted men from the nobility, the upper classes, to be taken to Babylon. When Daniel and his friends arrive, they are put into this kind of indoctrination program where they're given three years of training and they're asked to learn Babylonian literature, maths, astronomy, history and science. And immediately Daniel and his friends are put in this situation where they are having to swim against the current of the culture they're living in. And Daniel 1 gives us a really close example of how as Christians we can actually meaningfully and intentionally engage in the world around us but hold on to our God-given identities. Just to say, in terms of reading through Daniel 1, Daniel 1 witnesses to and is an example of someone who follows God faithfully, but ultimately he points to Jesus. Okay, so we're, we're looking at Daniel today, but ultimately we're looking at Jesus. Daniel points to him. So if we look at Jesus, he perfectly followed the will of his heavenly father. He was perfectly in this world, but not of it. And when Jesus died, when he rose again, when he sent his spirit to empower us, we can actually share in his victory. It's totally possible for us to be able to live in the way that we're seeing Daniel or the way that Jesus lived because we have his Holy Spirit. So I don't want to set up today this high benchmark and say, everyone just try and jump over this bar because we can't, but we have his spirit. So I want to just establish that at the beginning. So if we move to the next slide... When we think about how we live in this city, typically, when I've reflected on this for myself and also looking at the broader church, there are two camps as Christians that we can fit into. The first of these is separate. Okay, so this would have looked like Daniel coming from Judah, being placed in Babylon and deciding to completely cut himself off from the culture and refusing to engage with it. There are some good intentions behind this approach. But the problem is that as Christians, if we just separate ourselves from the culture, then we can't be salt and we can't be light. Okay, So the Bible says we're meant to be salt and light. And salt is meant to be distinctively involved in food. If you think about when you have a meal, you scatter it across that food. When you pick up that steak, I'm just thinking of steak, (laughs) you can taste that salt in and through every piece of that meat. That's what we're meant to be. So the danger is if we just separate ourselves, we can't actually do what we're here for. We're here to be salt and light. The other temptation is to go to the other extreme. So it's to say, okay, we're in Babylon, but we'll just assimilate with Babylon. We'll just become Babylonian in name and identity. So in terms of us as Christians, and you can actually see this in the broader church nowadays, this looks like in the spirit of trying to be inclusive, in the spirit of trying to say we just want to focus on the positives, we don't want to be negative, you end up just becoming like the world. And that reduces us as Christians to just being a bunch of friendly people that meet in a school hall and simply reflect this culture's norms, values and identities. And the good news of Jesus gets lost. We no longer become salt. We lose our saltiness. We just become indistinguishable from the world. But looking at Daniel today, and if you look at the life of Jesus, I think he's going to help us to think about how we can be in the world but not of it. 
And the Holy Spirit is going to help us in that task. So there are three main lessons I think we can learn from Daniel 1 today. Firstly, we're going to look at, we can trust God to tell us who we are. In this passage, Daniel is given a new name as soon as he arrives in Babylon. And sometimes living in this city, we need to ask ourselves, who are we defined by? Are we ultimately defined by our identities as children of God? Or do we identify with names that this culture, that London, our Babylon, puts upon us? We're going to look at our names in Jesus and how important it is to hold on to those. Secondly, we can trust the food that God gives us to eat. In this passage, we can see that Daniel is faced with this challenge where he is called to eat a different diet to the people around him. And something I want to touch upon today that I know for myself can sometimes be a struggle is that you can be living in this city and you can think, God, the diet that they eat, the way they live looks better. What do you do with that? (laughs) How do you process that as a Christian? Because sometimes it can be difficult. And thirdly and finally, we're going to look at we can trust God to look after us. Ultimately, in this passage, we can see that God looks after Daniel. God will look after us as we try to live in this culture and be in it, but not be of it. Okay? So is everyone on board? (laughs) Brilliant. So, firstly, we can trust God to tell us who we are. I was thinking about this and I thought it must have been very hard for Daniel to hold on to a sense of who he was. So when he arrives in Babylon as a young man in his mid-teens, he is immediately given a new name by King Nebuchadnezzar. Names are very powerful. Okay, so our names often say something about our origins. They say something about where we've come from. Also, if you think of when a parent names a child, often they'll name that child with a certain attribute in mind. Like they might call a child joy because they want that child to be joyful. I've been trying to give um, my sister Lequena and Mark a couple of <laughs> a couple of tips for names. So I, I use the, the front of the church to say that Mactuno is a good name. Just put that one in. Um, but yeah, my name is actually my name is Mactuno, and um, it's a name from the Acholi tribe in North Uganda. My dad's Uganda, my mum's English, and interestingly, my mother said that she gave me this name because it means perseverance. So when I was born, she said she wanted me to be a man who persevered with God. At the same time, when I talked to her about this name, she said she recognised I'll be living in the UK and she wanted me to be attached to my origins in Uganda. So there's something with names about your origin and also about who your parent wants you to be. And parents reflect God. God names people. We see that in scripture. So, for example, when God appeared to Abraham, he gave him a promise and said, you'll be the father of many and change his name to Abraham. Mary was asked to call her son Jesus, which means God saves Jesus changed his disciple Simon's name to Peter, which means the rock. And when Saul became a follower of Jesus, God changed his name to Paul. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian administration, the Babylonian government, they understood the power of names. So when they took these young men from Judah and placed them in Babylon, first thing they do is change their names. They knew what they were doing. So let's look in detail at this. It's really fascinating when you actually see how these names were changed and you see what Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire wanted to do to these young men. So Daniel means God is my judge. His, his name is changed to Belteshazzar, may Bel protect his life. Bel was a Babylonian god. Hananiah means the Lord shows grace. His name was changed to Shadrach, command of Aku. Aku is the moon god. Mishael, who is like God, his name was changed to Meshach, who is like Aku. Azariah, the Lord helps, is changed to Abednego, servant of Nabu. So you can kind of see what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. 
Nebuchadnezzar gave Daniel and his friends names in the hope that they would identify with the Babylonian identity. Now, in, I was thinking about, we're in London, and I was thinking about what kind of names does our culture try and put on us and try and expect us to live out of? Because I think increasingly in modern society, birth names are not that important. So some people now, they'll just say, oh, well, I named my child that name because it sounded nice, for example. But this culture has, and this city has tribal names and, and tribal groups that are of significance that sometimes we can be tempted to adopt. These names often embody values, they embody a way of seeing the world, and when people adopt these names, it often shapes the way that they orientate themselves in that world, the type of life they live. I want us to think about the types of names that are presented to us and what the types of names that we're tempted to adopt and live out of, okay? So I'm gonna put up a list of names in a moment, and I want you to look at this list and say, which of these names that this, this city presents you with are you sometimes tempted to live out of? Okay, so I'll put up a slide. These are a list of London tribes, London names that people will adopt and often live out of. It will shape the way they see the world and what they see as significant. The point I'm trying to make here is, I'm not trying to say all names and all identities that this city has are bad. Some of these names, actually, they're not really very compatible with our identities as children of God. I'm not going to go into that right now. But the point I want to make is, is that if you identify with or you live out of some of these names that our cities give us, and that fundamentally is the core of your identity, then you can find that that might actually start to compromise who you are in Jesus. I'll give you an example, okay? So... Names that I feel I identify with are black and activist. That, partly because that reflects something of my experience in this world. And I find those names quite helpful in terms of understanding myself, in terms of thinking about what I see as important. However, I cannot live fundamentally out of being a black man. I cannot fundamentally live out of being an activist because that will start to shape everything that I do. Fundamentally, I'm a son of God. That is my identity. That's who I am. He's named me. I can't take on this Babylonian identity and let everything revolve around that. There might be other names you're tempted to live out of. You might be a, a businessman or businesswoman. You might be a young professional and think, yeah, I just want to make money. I just want to get property. I just want to climb that ladder. That's not a bad thing, but we can't let that fundamentally define us. It might be something like the word, it's not actually up here. <laughs> um, the word beautiful, I was thinking a bit about Instagram and about how some people live their whole life their whole identity is, I want to be attractive. If I'm attractive, then that is the sense of who I am. We can't live out of these names. If we're Christians at our heart level, we need to know Jesus has given us a new name. And it's given us a new identity when we invited him to be Lord of our lives. He defines and shapes our path, not Babylon. In Psalm 49, it says, See, I have engraved your names. This is God speaking. See, I have engraved your names on the palm of my hands. God's rescued us from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. And through turning away from living our own way, from turning away through defining ourselves, he's invited us into his family, the church. We now have new names. If you could put up the next slide. These are our names. And it's funny because as I was preparing this talk, in terms of being part of the family of God, I've sometimes struggled with that. I've sometimes not been very proud of my 
family name as a Christian. I've struggled with the church. I've struggled with... But as I was reading this, I was thinking, oh, my goodness, like, this is who I am. This is where I belong. This is fundamentally what I'm meant to live out of. John 3.1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. 1 Peter 2.9 says, We are called, we are named, we are labelled sons and daughters of God. We are called a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. These are our names. When Jesus called you, he had a specific name for you. And it says in the Bible that we're like sheep. He knows each of us by name. He has a specific spiritual identity and place within his church that he wants you to live out of. So how practically can we live in this world and hold on to our identities as children of God? So if we move to the next slide. I think there are three practical ways that we can hold on to our identity. The first thing is we have to remind ourselves of our names and who we are in him. We have to meditate on who we are in Jesus. Last summer... Yeah, it would have been last summer, about a year ago, I went back to Uganda for the first time in 20 years. And I spent several special evenings with my dad where we sat on his veranda and we were looking out over like the twinkling lights of Kampala. And he was telling me about my family, my origins, um, my tribe, all these different things. And it, and it was special. But the thing is, that was significant as an earthly identity. But what runs far deeper than only earthly identities, our spiritual identity. It's far more glorious, it's far greater. And I just want to encourage you that sometimes, the same way I sat down with my dad and I listened to him, sometimes you have to sit down with the Holy Spirit. You have to open the Bible and say, God, please remind me of my name. Tell me who I am. We need to read through scriptures. If you're not a person that really has ever opened a Bible, Google's brilliant. Go on Google, type in <laughs> what does God call us, type in identity, the Bible verse, the Bible verses and you'll come up with streams and streams of verses that talk about who you are in God read that immerse yourself in it that is your name that has to be you need to remind yourself of that and just to say that this is not an academic exercise okay so it's not like you know you just open the bible and you just read something and then it just tells you who you are in Romans 8:15 it says you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So on the deep, at the deepest, deepest heart level, the Holy Spirit will remind you of your name as you read through scripture. He is tattooed on your heart a sense of who you are. Okay? Secondly, be aware of what shapes you. So I was thinking, at different times in my life, I get into different box set series on Netflix. Okay? And the latest one I've got into is Suits. And I'm very late to the game. I think it's been out for like five, six years. I see a little fist bump in the back of fist. <laughs> um, this is about high-flying, powerful, glamorous city lawyers, this series, okay? Now, why is it that afters I find myself browsing, you know, jobs online, thinking, oh, maybe I should have a career change, <laughs> you know, checking out flights to Manhattan. It just looks so glamorous. <laughs> or you watch Lord of the Rings and you find yourself on Amazon and you think to yourself, oh, how can I, you know, you want to buy the Sword of Aragorn and put it on your wall. <laughs> like, things shape us. And I use these funny anecdotes, but the reality is the things that we immerse ourselves in, the things that we casually watch, read, the people we spend time with, all of these things, places we go, they shape us. They really do. And we just have to be really conscious of the messages and the different identities that we can be called to or, or sometimes asked to live out of by this world and by the messages it sends out. Some things are clearly unhelpful. Some things are more subtle. But we need to walk with Jesus and ask him, is this, is, this, is this helping me? 
Is this reminding me of my name? Or is it actually causing me to just assimilate with this culture? Philippians 4.8 says, Whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything is worthy of praise, dwell on these things. So thirdly, spend time with people that know your real name. What's really interesting is, is I thought to myself, Daniel and his friends had their names changed. So when they were in Babylon class, I don't know, <laughs> there were 30 of them sitting around being taught by the chief official or something about this is Babylonian literature, you know, reading their books, doing comprehension, whatever it might have been. In that class, they would be referred to by their Babylonian names. But I imagine when they were together, they called themselves their actual names. And there's something important about when we come together, we remind ourselves of our true names. That's why fellowship is so important. I can spend time with someone at work. I can, t- I can spend time with sometimes a family member or a friend or somebody that, 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 that doesn't know Jesus, and they might refer to me by a certain name. But when I come together with a brother or a sister, they refer to me by my actual name. And I was thinking about this. Um, I told Ted, I'd give him a little shout-out. Ted, raise your hand. <laughs> Ted's my running partner. And... Um, I think sometimes we're immersed, you know, I'm immersed in the world of psychology, he's immersed in the world of fashion, and sometimes I think it's very hard for us to hold on to who we are and our names as, um, as sons of God. And when we come together, we remind ourselves of who we are, we pray together, and it's just so, so useful. So on the back of the, the series on Running Partners, thinking about gospel communities, pray to God for a Hananiah, pray to God for a Mishael, pray for God for, for an Azariah, someone you come together with and then you look at each other, you can look at each other in the eye and say, this is your name. You need those people in your life. Perhaps today you're not a Christian and this whole thing of identity is quite interesting for you and you're looking at, you looked at that board full of names earlier and you thought to yourself, actually, yeah, that's me. I live out of that place. And maybe you've come to a place where you've thought to yourself, I've tried living out of that place, but I don't actually have a grounded sense of who I am. This identity, this me defining myself hasn't done anything for me. I want to say today that actually you can come to Jesus and he can tell you who you truly are. The Bible says that God knitted you together in your mother's womb. He knows you. He made you. He created you. And in him you can find a true sense of who you are. If you turn away from defining yourself, turn away from trying to do things your own way, he will give you a brand new name. So, secondly, we can trust the food God's given us to eat. So, Daniel and his friends are given this new name, and they're presented with this situation where King Nebuchadnezzar and the chief officials say, you have to eat this food and this portion of food that's been given to you by the king. We see Daniel saying that he doesn't want to defile himself with this royal food. So you might be asking yourself, what does that mean? Why did he say he didn't want to defile himself? Well, this is because either A, the food could have been against the food laws that were given to the Jews in Leviticus. So there could be something about this food that was against the dietary requirements that God gave them. Or secondly, it could have been because these, um, this food had been sacrificed to a Babylonian idol. When, I th- when we think about being in this culture, sometimes it's very difficult to work out what should I do, what shouldn't I do, what's to follow Jesus, what's not following Jesus, where's the line? And I just wanted to say that it's really important to walk closely with God on this. There are some things that are really, really clear and black and white. Some things are more grey and some things are more subtle. If we look at the letter that Paul wrote, wrote to the Roman church, he said he, they were having the same discussion about should we eat food offered to idols or should we not? 
And it seemed like some people thought they could, some people thought they couldn't. And in Romans 14, 14, Paul said, I know and I'm convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. But if someone believes it is wrong, then for that person it is wrong. So what Paul's saying is if in your heart actually you think about something and your conscience, you feel it, you think actually if I really walk close with God in this one, I shouldn't be doing that. Then you should listen to your conscience in that sense. These are for the things that are not black and white, for the things that are more subtle. There was one thing that struck me this morning as I was reading through Daniel and I was thinking this whole thing of being Christ-like in a culture that doesn't recognise him. Sometimes there's a temptation that when we look at Daniel in this story and we see him saying, I'm not going to defile myself with the king's food, we almost get the image of maybe we need to be these sort of like gun-ho Christians who like stand our ground and say, I'm not doing that. You know, so <laughs> our boss says to us something like, should you do this? And we're meant to somehow like march into the chief exec's office and, you know, throw our Bible on the desk and say, this is who we are. I'm not doing this. But <laughs> that's not how Daniel is in this story. He actually approaches the chief official's assistant and he says, look, can you test us for 10 days? I understand that actually your job may be at stake if you make the wrong decision here. So there's something about meekness in terms of actually Daniel kind of follows, um, follows God, but he does it in a sensitive and meek way. He isn't one of these kind of gun-ho, like, Wah, Christians who just, you know, that isn't what he does here. So there's something about when we actually follow Jesus and when we say to ourselves, we're not going to defy ourselves with certain things, we can do it sensitively, we can do it meekly, we can do it just with humility, okay? I was thinking, what could have been happening in Daniel's head when he saw this food being given out? What could have been the temptations? How might he have been tempted to act? There are two thoughts I think he could have had. First of all, he could have thought, eating the royal food looks good. I know everyone can see that. The guy on the left there is eating salad. The girl on the left is eating a burger and Coke. <laughs> Um, what was this royal food that he couldn't eat? Well, it was most probably he couldn't eat meat, okay? Um, so Daniel was asking the chief official's assistants to, to live on a veggie diet. Now, <laughs> amen from Adam. <laughs> and I was thinking about this scenario. Sometimes when God calls us to live a certain way, it can mean that we have to forego certain pleasures and things that we see people around us eating, okay? Sometimes we can look at how God's calling us to live and the world around us can seem quite nice. It can seem quite tasty. It might even sometimes appear healthier. You might be living a certain lifestyle with Jesus and think, actually, wow, like my friends, my family, like they look like they've got it good. They're not following Jesus, but it looks quite nice. It looks quite tasty. It maybe even look, might look healthier if you conform to the world at times. I wanted to think a bit more about this, and I wanted to mention three specific scenarios that might reflect an experience that you might have living in London, living in this Babylon, and seeing people eat royal food. Here's a first example. You might have been single for years, and you'd love to be married, but for whatever reason it hasn't happened. And you see people in your family and in your workplace just casually meeting people, settling down, moving in together, and you feel alone and you feel excluded, and the raw food looks good. You might be a person who's attracted to people of the same sex, and you know these are feelings you can't express as a Christian. 
and you worry that your desire for companionship and intimacy will not be fulfilled, and you're surrounded by people in the public eye, you're surrounded by people at work or friends, same-sex couples in relationships that seem loving, and you feel hopeless, you feel confused. The world food looks good. You might just see people living carefree, yeah? having fun, trying to be good people, buying ethical clothing, campaigning for the occasional cause, going to festivals, just having a good time. And the life of God just feels restrictive and it feels boring. You feel like you're always the one that misses out on the party. The royal food looks good. These are realities that we face sometimes being in a city and foregoing royal food. I want to say that we need to trust the food that God's given us. We need to trust that his way will ultimately prosper us. In John 10.10, Jesus said, I've come, they may have life to the full. Jesus was single, he was persecuted, he lived in loving community with his disciples, but when he went to the cross, they'd abandoned him. B, he had such a close relationship with his father that he was able to do his father's will. And my prayer is that in Christ we can find a satisfaction and a sweetness that is better than honey, that overrules that desire, sometimes that, that salivating for the royal food. The Israelites faced the same temptation. So if you think of the people of God, they've been delivered from Egypt, delivered from Pharaoh, and they've gone through the Red Sea, and they were on their way to the Promised Land. And in some way, that's kind of similar to us. Okay? So we get rescued by God, we go through the waters of baptism, and then we are here on earth, and we're moving towards um, heaven. A little anecdote about this desert, <laughs> this desert we can find ourselves in. About three years ago, I went to, it wasn't exactly the same space these Israelites would have been in, but it was the same desert, okay? And I think me and Julia were hoping, hoping for some sort of, you know, super spiritual experience. <laughs> like, we were there for the sunbathing, for the snorkeling in Egypt, but we thought, ah, oh, this is our little kind of spiritual time. So the plan was, we went to our travel operator, and we said to him, okay, can you pick us up at midnight? I don't know if anyone's done this trip, maybe some people with done this the Mount Sinai experience <laughs> they pick us up at 12 o'clock and then we arrive at the um, foot of Mount Sinai at like 3 a.m then we have to climb up and I think well the plan was maybe unconsciously you know we'd get to the top of the mountain and we'd be presented with like the 11th commandment you know what I mean <laughs> we'll come back to the church with the stone tablet take take the stone tablet through customs and bring it in today and say, <laughs> that was the plan um i think but the only spiritual experience we had was basically it was pneumonia yeah because the desert is so so cold and it's just rock and we were with a huge group of tourists in full climbing gear and they thought this was a race so there was points where like julia almost got knocked off mount sinai by a really enthusiastic tourist so it was it was mad it was not a spiritual experience um, <laughs> when I got to the top, it was so cold, I tried to buy a blanket, and the man thought I was stealing the blanket. We go into tug of war, so I was not given a commandment. Someone just accused me of breaking one. That's all that happened, you know? Um, <laughs> but our journey through this world and living in this world, it can feel rocky, it can feel harsh, it can feel cold. And sometimes God provides us with manna and quail the same way that He provided the Israelites with food. But we still complain. In Numbers 11.5, the Israelites said, we remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our appetites are gone. All we ever see is the manna. 
They wanted to go back to Egypt, and sometimes we can be tempted in the same way. We can be tempted to eat the raw food. But I want to say we must remember God's goodness. He's rescued us from Egypt. He's rescued us from darkness. The food may look good, but his presence is better. The food may look good, but when we lived enslaved to our own desires and our own passions, we weren't happy. We weren't happy. So I just wanted to remind you of that. Psalm 37, verse 17, my most, it's one of my favorite verses because this, the food looked good. Food, this, the food looks good. Often happens for me as a Christian day to day. It says, don't worry about the wicked or envy those who do wrong. For like grass, they will soon fade away. Like spring flowers, they will soon wither. Trust in the Lord and do good. Live safely in the land and prosper. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust him and he will help you. He'll make your innocence radiate like the dawn and the justice of your cause will shine like the noonday sun. Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. Don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret about their wicked schemes. Psalm 16 says, Lord, my boundaries have fallen in pleasant places. I love that. My boundaries have fallen in pleasant places. You might think, I want the royal food. No, Lord, my boundaries have fallen in pleasant places. The second thing you could have thought is, eating the royal food will keep me out of trouble. Let me just go along. Let me just go along with it. It's too difficult. Rejecting food is quite a significant act. Actually, I think, <laughs> I was thinking this morning, we had a, 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 a person we know who came around our house and chose not to eat our food and <laughs> we were really, really offended. It's like, what's wrong with our food? What's wrong with our house? You know, is it, you get quite... <laughs> um, I think he's on a special diet. Um, <laughs> being like Daniel. Anyway, um, in the Bible, eating food is a really significant thing. Okay, so sometimes we see that actually people make covenants or do a deal with someone over food. When I looked through a commentary and, th- and looked at what this food eating might have meant... Daniel turning down the food could have been him actually saying, I'm not pledging allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar. There was something quite significant in him refusing the food. Sometimes being out there in the workplace, being in our families, being out there in Babylon, it can be very, very lonely. I don't know if anyone has that experience. Sometimes it can be lonely. You just think to yourself, I don't really want to have to do this again. I don't want to have to be the one person who has a different way of or doesn't do that or doesn't do this or chooses to do something differently. It can be lonely, it can be hard, it can be difficult. This was even more so the case if you think of, some, if you think of Jesus. Jesus was, when he was in his, in his earthly ministry, the religious leaders were always accusing him, always, were always having a go at him because of the fact that he was healing the sick, the fact that he was claiming to be God, the fact that he was um, forgiving people of their sins. But yet he didn't bow to the pressure or hostility. He just walked closely with God and did the will of his heavenly father, empowered by the spirit. You might be a person who thinks, well, when I look at Daniel, when I think about all this stuff about standing out or this thing of you know, not becoming part of Babylon, you might think, I don't have a temperament. I'm, I'm a shy, retiring person. I never like to be the one that stands out. If you look in the Bible at someone like Peter, someone who denied Jesus three times, but then when he was empowered by the Holy Spirit, he can stand in front of a crowd of people and declare the glories of God. That's the same for you. So you might be listening to this preach today and think to yourself, I want to be in the world, but not of it. But I always find myself getting dragged into it. By the power of his spirit, you can be able to actually be in this world, but not of it. You can be salt and light in the city. So there's hope for all of us, praise God. We have his Holy Spirit. Finally, we can trust God to look after us. Oh, time. 
Oh, is it well over? Way over. I think people really want to respond, though. Yeah. So, Shall I come to the last slide? This slide is basically, we can trust God to look after us. So. <laughs> <laughs> These are the last two. <laughs> this just two verses to, just to say, not to fall into two camps, not to assimilate, but not to separate. Jeremiah 17 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in him. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. And is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. We're meant to root ourselves in Jesus and live out of that in terms of our identities. At the same time, we are meant to love this city. We are meant to be salt. We are meant to be light. We are not to be in a cave, strange Christians in a cave, hoarding up food for the end days. That's not what we're meant to be. We're meant to be salt and light. We're meant to pray to the Lord for this city, seek its welfare. For in its welfare, you will find welfare, as it says there in Jeremiah. And this is Jeremiah writing to the Babylon, to Babylon, to those in exile. So, um, I've come to time. <laughs> At the risk of being you know, the, the guy who kind of ruined things, I want us to respond to this sermon, um, and also I want to make sure that we honour our kids' workers. Just to say, the main issue, well, there's lots of things, but the thing I felt to say on this is that none of these names have enough in them. Mm. Yeah. None of them ha- none of them have enough in them for who you truly are. That's a really important thing to say. Uh, but you've been baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mm. In that name, mm. there is enough for you. Mm. And only in that name. And I just feel it's really important that we understand that. Many of these names in and of themselves are, you know, kind of neither here nor there. But as an identity, it's just not enough. And it will leave you hungry and wanting. Mm. But in him. It's a different story. So bless you. Thanks again. Absolutely superb.